0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Easter is a love story. It's a love story of God going to His people, making them, teaching them, naming them, and bringing them back out of the sin that they had fallen into after rejecting Him. The Lord continues to love His people despite their... Falling away in sin and their rejection of him. This is the love story that the prophet Isaiah is telling. The prophet Isaiah, in about 800 BC, goes all the way back to Genesis. He goes back to creation and he tells this love story. He says uh, that this is the Lord who created you. The Lord created you, the Lord named you, and the Lord is going to redeem you. Now, Isaiah is talking about the nation of Israel. He is talking to this group of people that the Lord um, formed, that he named, that he made his own, but that he made his own with a purpose, not uh, so that they would just be saved in and of themselves, saved meaning coming into relationship with God, not so that they only would come into relationship with God, but he redeems Israel, he forms Israel in order to save the whole world, in order to bring the whole world into relationship with him. And this is the truth that is not just evident um, at the time of the Acts of the Apostles or the time of the early church, but it is evident uh, here in the writings of Isaiah that the Lord's uh, desire is to love the whole world. God loved the whole world. We read here in Isaiah 43, uh, verse 8, he says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, and uh, yet who have ears. So he is identifying the fact that he is um, after people who are broken, that the Lord's uh, desire is to find broken people and to mend them, to heal them, to, to bring them into newness and understanding. And, and then he identifies that it's the, the nations of the world that are broken. In verse 9 he says, All the nations gather together and all the peoples assemble. So here, 800 years before the coming of Christ, we see that the Lord's plan through the nation of Israel, is to bind and heal the nations of the whole world, and to bring them unto himself. And the method that he does this is clear from the time of Genesis. Now, there are many people uh, who will say, um, oh, how could uh, Moses know, or how could Isaiah know about Christ? Uh, he is, you know, hundreds of years before them. Well, um, if you don't understand that, then you haven't read the Scriptures. It's time to come to Bible study and to find out how it is that that happens because that is throughout the scriptures, right? Uh, Jesus says over and over again, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, right? So um, he is uh, showing us, and we're going to talk in a minute on the road to Emmaus, how he opened the scriptures, right? From Genesis, from Moses, and he showed how he was foretold, how he was spoken of. So Jesus is known from Genesis 1. He is talked about throughout, and it's made very clear in the prophet Isaiah and here in this chapter 43. The Lord is talking about how he's going to accomplish this redeeming, this bringing back, right? Redemption is something has lost its value, and uh, the the person goes and finds it and redeems it, brings its value back, right? Brings it back into usefulness. So he's saying the people have lost their value, right? The Lord made us to dwell with him. He made us to live in the garden, to be um, paradise dwellers, to be in relationship with him and to abide with him. And we've lost that value because in selfishness and greed, we've turned away from him and we've we've lost that value and the Lord is going to give us that value back, right? And so how is he going to do that? He says he's going to send his servant and he says that, that the people are the witnesses. So God is doing the work And the people are the witnesses. This is the role of the people from the very beginning. The role of the people from the very beginning is to say, Oh, I see what God is doing. I see the work that He has done. I see His handiwork. I see what He's done in creation. I see how He's made people. I see how He's made me. I see what it is that He's made me for. So we are witnesses, we are informed observers who are watching what it is the Lord is doing, and our job is to stand up and to say, this is what the Lord has done. And what he does is he sends his servant. At first, when we read this, we think, oh, he must be talking about some prophet here, in confusion, the way that the two on the road to Emmaus thought they would met a prophet. But he clarifies. In verse 10 he says, My servant, whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand. So again, this is the purpose of the servant. The servant is to bring the people into knowledge and understanding of who God is and what he's doing, right? We're informed witnesses. We're able to understand the purposes of God, right? We're able to explain them, right? That's our role. He says, I am he. My servant, I am he. He's saying that He is the servant that He is sending to redeem the world. He says, Before Me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after Me. I am the Lord, and besides Me, there is no Savior. So the Savior, the One who redeems Israel, is God Himself. He is saying that I am He, there is no one else. So the understanding of the coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, is that this is what... God himself is doing. He says, My servant, I am he. Besides me, there is no Savior. Again, he repeats. And any of us who have uh, been in school know when the teacher repeats something, right? It's important, right? So he says it again. You are my witnesses, and I am God. Just to clarify, right? Right? You're my witnesses. I am God. So, our job is to watch what God does and to say, oh, here he is acting. Here he is sending himself, his servant, to redeem. Here he is naming and creating. Here he is bringing people out of exile. Here he is gathering the nations of the whole world. Here he is bringing them out. And it's God himself who does it. We are the witnesses. And this idea of knowing and understanding as informed witnesses is key to this passage here from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, uh, the passage that we um, often call um, the road to Emmaus, or on the road to Emmaus. Uh, We get the name of one of uh, these men, Cleopas, and uh, it seems pretty clear from the writing that Luke is the other Um, This is the tradition of all the gospel writers to not name themselves or to give nicknames to themselves or to somehow kind of separate themselves in the narrative, right? They in no way make themselves heroes of the narrative in any way. Now, this is part of the hallmark of the gospel writers. And the tradition tells us that both Luke and Cleopas are eyewitnesses and members of the Seventy. So you remember that there are concentric circles Uh, around Jesus, right? There's that um, uh, very tight inner circle of um, Peter, James, and John, the three uh, who are, um, you know, allowed in to see certain things in Jesus's ministry. But another concentric circle that's just as tight and just as intimate um, is this group of women of whom Jesus's mother is one. And the women, again, have a kind of intimacy and a kind of access to Jesus um, that the others don't seem to have. So we kind of have these two um, you know, interlocking concentric circles of Peter, James, and John and the women, these close women. And then we have the rest of the 12 forming another circle. And then we have the 70 forming another larger circle. So now the people that are with him from baptism until his crucifixion is at least about 120 people, if not more, that are walking with Jesus along the way and the 70 you remember are sent out two by two to do ministry and to come back so tradition tells us that Cleopas and Luke are part of this uh, circle of 70 who do ministry who are there from Jesus' baptism uh, until his crucifixion and um, Matthias who is chosen to replace Judas would be a member of this uh, larger circle Right, this larger group of people that are with him from his baptism So that's who they are, which is really important because we read that uh, they don't recognize Jesus. Now, what does that mean, right? They're supposed to be witnesses to what it is that God has done. They're the ones who are saying, I saw it with my eyes. This is what I have seen. I've been with him through his ministry. I've been with him through his baptism. And there's a couple of things about these resurrected bodies that that we read about, this resurrected body of Jesus. The first one is that um, it's not recognizable the way our bodies are recognizable, right? I recognize you by the color of your hair, the size and, and shape of your, of your face, right? And your stature, etc. cetera. Uh, Jesus' resurrected body doesn't seem to be recognizable that way. Uh, first of all, that's, I think, really important because I don't know about you, but people think they know me by looking at me. Has that ever happened to you? Somebody looks at you and they think, oh, I know who you are, Right? I think that's a really important thing for us to first um, realize and to kind of reject that um, knowing Jesus isn't about recognizing him based on any of his physical attributes, right? The, The knowledge that they have of him is supposed to be far greater. And what is it that they tell Jesus when they don't recognize him about who Jesus was? They say that he was a prophet who did lots of great stuff. In other words, they have no clue who he is. They've been with him for three years, and they think that he's some prophet. Now, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, but he's so much more than that, right? He is God. And they don't recognize that. And they're sad. They say, we thought that he was the prophet who was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was the Messiah because we saw some glory, right? We saw some miracles. We saw some some power, but they have no understanding of the Messiah's suffering. And as we've looked at all the way through Lent, we can't understand Messiah glory without understanding Messiah suffering. We can't understand love without understanding suffering. We can't understand the love story of Easter because the whole point is that God says, Oh, you can't do it. I'm going to do it for you. That's what a lover does. A lover says, Here's something you need to do. I'm going to do it for you until you can do it at least with me, and and if not for yourself. And this is what God does He says, I'm going to do it for you. So they have no understanding of Messiah's suffering. So what does Jesus do to open their eyes? Does He say, Oh, look at the color of my hair? Look at the shape of my face? He does two things. The first thing he does is he turns to the scriptures and he opens the scriptures. What scriptures are we talking about here? The Hebrew scriptures, right? He is opening Genesis. It says he starts with Moses, right? So he's starting with Genesis 1. And he's going through all the prophets and the histories. And he's saying, this is what was written about me. In other words, if we're reading Genesis, if we're reading the Old Testament, if we're reading the Hebrew scriptures and we're not seeing Jesus, we're not reading it right. Because this is how Jesus reads it. He says, this is what was told about me. And this passage from Isaiah is a wonderful indicative passage, right? He is the servant. He is the one who is going to suffer to redeem Israel, to bring salvation to all nations. Then the second thing that happens is they have some perception now from the scriptures. And so their response and their and their doubt or their lack of understanding is to say, come, come and, and be with us and eat with us. Now, this should remind us of, of Thomas and what we read last week, right? Because all this takes place, right, on, the, the, on Easter day, on the first day of the week, right? And, and they have the same kind of, of doubt that Thomas has. Not the kind of doubt that leads to um, despair. Not the kind of doubt that says, I refuse to believe but the kind of doubt that says, I don't understand and I want to know and believe. That's very important. Because the first kind of doubt, I think we're all familiar with, the doubt that leads to despair. But the second kind of doubt, we all need to recognize and admit. We all need to say, I'm lacking in understanding. I'm lacking in knowledge. I'm lacking in what I need to know about God. And that's the kind of doubt that The two on the road to Emmaus and that Thomas express that Jesus responds to by saying, I'm going to come to you and express and bring you into a deeper knowledge, make you better witnesses of who I am. So they express that doubt and Jesus does what? He celebrates Holy Communion. He breaks bread with them. And this is why in the church, there are two aspects to our worship, always. The two aspects to our worship are The liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament, right? From the first days of the church, from the earliest days, we have celebrated two parts of our liturgy, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament. So we read the scriptures. We have them explicated for us. Our response to the scriptures is confession of sin, right? We say, oops, I'm not the witness I need to be. We confess that, doubt, That need to come into a deeper relationship of witness. And then the Lord breaks bread for us. And in the breaking of bread and the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood, we come into yet again another mystical understanding where our eyes are opened and we come to know the risen Lord. And this is what happens to the two on the road to Emmaus. In the breaking of bread, he is made known to them. How is it? That in this powerful breaking of bread and making known, we could treat that as something that we do every once in a while, or on the side. It is central to our coming to know who Jesus is, to having our eyes open so that we can know him and we can be reliable witnesses of his saving grace. Now, this this love relationship, sometimes we can talk about it romantically in that Easter is a love story, but sometimes we need to talk about it as family love, right? And this is the way that St. Peter talks about it. So it's not just a romantic love story, it's a a parent-child story, which is sometimes problematic for us, just like the romantic story is, because sometimes we haven't had great relationships, a great experience in romance, a great experience with parents, right? And that parent love isn't something that we immediately look to and say, oh yes, I know what that good parent love looks like. If we don't know it, the Lord can reveal it to us, and he does in scripture. He shows us what good parenting is supposed to be like. So we're not here relying on our own personal experience. We're relying on what the Lord tells us a good parenting relationship should look like. And he tells us that um, as he is a father to us, um, that we are supposed to be obedient children, conformed, right, to conform to his holiness. Which Jesus says over and over again, right? Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. St. Peter is saying it a slightly different way. He's saying, be holy as your Father in Heaven is holy. And how do we do that? The first way that we do that is through fear, right? We have good, healthy fear. We're supposed to have a fear of a parent who is going to discipline us, right? Because there are consequences to sin. The Lord has made the world and He's ordered us so that when we sin, we suffer. When we step out of his holiness, when we step out of his righteousness, right, we step off the curb and don't look both ways, there are consequences to that sin. And we should be afraid of those consequences, just as we're afraid of electricity in the socket, right? We have a good, healthy fear so that we can use it in the right way, right? Use it in the right way and we get air conditioning. Use it the wrong way and we die. The power of God is no different. We enter into His holiness with a good, healthy fear to relate to Him and to uh, be in relationship with Him in the right way. And that right way He calls holiness. So He tells us again that we are supposed to come into obedience to truth, right? And this is what the Lord does when He um, enters us into this born-again life, right? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Jesus is saying, you can't do it for yourself. You can't live the way that you need to by yourself. I'm suffering for you. I'm going to do it for you. And this is what a good parent does, right? A good parent says, you can't carry that by yourself. You can't walk in all that way by yourself. You can't hold the pin by yourself. You can't get dressed by yourself. I'm going to do it for you, right? And there's nothing more rewarding for a parent than when a child is able to do the most important things for themselves, right? The first time that a parent sees a child be compassionate and loving and do something for somebody else without hope of reward or benefit. That's the moment, right? When you think, oh, oh, they can think about somebody else. They can love and do what I've been doing for them. And that's the relationship that the Lord has with us. He's saying, I'm going to be compassionate to you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to hold you up. Until you can start to do that with me. Until you too can start to bear your own cross. Until you can begin to suffer with me. Because that's what love is. That's what it is. To say, I'm going to do it for you. Until you can do it with me. And this is what we are called into being witnesses of. We are called to be witnesses of God's love, to say, this is what he's done for us. This is what he's done for me. This is how he saved me. This is how he's helped me. This is how he's loved me. This is all that he's done to bring me into relationship with me. This is how he's held me up, and he will hold you up to. And our hearts would burn within us when we read about his grace, and our eyes would be opened when we receive his body and blood that we may see him and know him and bear witness to him in all that we do and say.